Okay, this is everything you need, but only you're going to only know this if you're an insider. If you begin to realize that most of what's uh, put forth during the Christmas season are the gospel narratives. But in order to really understand the gospel narratives, you need the spirit of truth who then came along afterwards and explained what happened in those gospel narratives. And one of the greatest explanations comes in the letter that was written to the Hebrews. And we're going to look at chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 5 through 18. Now, the problem is that your bulletin is chapter 5, not chapter 2. So I have to go old school today and read it to you. All right? Technology is lovely, and this is really a leather one. You know, I mean, it's onion skin paper even. This is Jesus' words in red. I, no, I don't think so. All right, so we're gonna, I'm going to read this out loud to you. It's chapter 2 of Hebrews, it's verses 5 through 18. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, you ever notice that it's really hard to know what you need? It's easy in some ways to think you need something, and then you get it, and you realize, I didn't really need that all that much. It was always interesting watching my kids, and my favorite Christmases were when they were little. You know, there's nothing like, if you're a parent, there's nothing like little kids at Christmas. I mean, it's just the most fun thing, especially when they like what they get. So I remember my son was about three years old, his his uh, grandparents, my wife's parents, particularly my wife's mom, she's an obsessed Christmas fanatic. And she, she bought him every Star Wars toy. Wow. So he's three years old. He opens it up. And, you know, it's Luke Skywalker. Just what I always needed. 
You know, he picks, you know, he's got Job of the Pizza Hut, and he has, you know, he has, uh, you know, all of the, you know, Darth Vader, he has everything, every single one, ripping it up, going, oh, just what I needed. And then, you know, he'd get pajamas, and he'd put that aside, and I'd go, just what we needed. <laughs> you, know, you know, so he, he's totally engrossed in his desire, in his, you know, this is what I wanted, but he's calling it, this is what I needed. And then when he gets what he really needs, he throws it aside because it's not really what he wanted. And when you come to Christmas, what you have to realize is that the Father knew exactly what you needed. But it may not be what you're expecting or what you wanted. So what happens when the heart begins to realize more and more, someone knows what I need better than I do? I remember when my daughter got to that age. You know, there's a, there's a point where they don't understand Christmas, and then all of a sudden Christmas is everything. So she was about three or so, and she had the best Christmas. So every day we would pray over the food, and she'd say, can I, be, can I, can I do the blessing? Can I do the blessing? And she would pray, and she'd go, oh, God, thank you for the presents. <laughs> and she thanked God for the presents all the way till July. And her brother goes, stop it! It was all the way back at Christmas. Yeah, but I'm still thankful, she said. You know, and it just, it was, you know, I, I watched that and I go, I don't have a heart like that. I'm already thinking about the next thing. I'm already asking, what are you going to do for me today? Kind of a thing. And part of that is because we don't really know what he's done for us. And we don't really know the meaning of this incredible event where God becomes man. And so Hebrews, in the second chapter, he's explaining this insider view of Christmas. And he's explaining it to a group of Christians who are in persecution. To have faith was to suffer, was to be under pressure, it was to lose family, it was to lose your status in society, your job availability. It was, it was a very, very costly thing to be a Christian. It was very easy for them to say, why should I continue? If it is so hard to be a Christian, why should I continue? And so what the author does is he tells them about Christmas. And he explains to them why God could not just simply make their life easier, but why God himself entered into the hardship of their lives. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm suffering, all I want is God to take it away. So my prayer is usually, end this, stop this, don't let this continue. Or if I need money, I say, give me money. I, know I don't really want to hear a deeper lesson. I just want a greater blessing, you know, kind of a thing. And yet, what you see, the more you yield to God, the deeper you go in this walk, is that he's accomplishing through your circumstances things that would not reveal your brokenness without the hardship. And do not reveal how much you trust in yourself until you no longer have the resources to trust in yourself. And so in this passage of Scripture, he is speaking to a group of people whose resources have run out. And he's speaking them to the source of their power when they feel powerless. And the first thing that he shares with them is this aspect that Jesus Christ has come as a king, 
as the king to deliver them from their enemies. This passage of scripture is so powerful because it explains who your two enemies are. It says that there is one who has the power of death, which is a very powerful thing, who has the power, the power to inflict on you to the level of death that sort of suffering, and he is called the devil in this case, or Satan. Now, this doesn't seem very sophisticated or modern, but the scriptures say that if there is a personal God, there's also a personal evil. And that personal evil is, is not you know, red-tailed and horned and all like this, but rather more of a psychologist than a lawyer. He knows every loophole, and he knows every psychological tendency that you have all the way back to the beginning. And so he knows exactly how to design a strategy to destroy you. And Jesus meant no words about the devil. He said that his, his purpose in your life is to be your enemy. And being your enemy, he, he only feels like he has fulfilled his mission when you're either killed, stolen from, or destroyed. Now, I've always wondered why Christians are so reticent to recognize we have a real enemy. Because if, if you knew there was a serial killer in your neighborhood, you would make sure every door was locked. You would not leave a window un, unsecured if you knew there was such a danger. And yet you and I will just blind our eyes to the fact that the Bible says you have a very real enemy. And the interesting thing is that even if you succeed in getting the enemy out of your own head, he will have willing accomplices all around you because he is a deceiver. The power of deception is you don't know you're deceived. So there are people in your life who will think they're speaking truth or acting truthfully towards you, but in fact are trying to kill, steal, or destroy from you because they don't know where the source of their lies are coming from. And there are Christians who will literally say, well, you can't blame the devil for everything. I'm like, Jesus blamed him for every lie. He called him the father of lies. He's saying every lie has satanic DNA. So everything that is coming against you as an enemy is at its basis a lie. That's the only power he has. So he is behind every kind of adversarial thing that happens to you in your life. And so here in the scriptures, it says that Jesus has come as a king to defend you, to defeat your enemies, to give you victory over those enemies. And chief among those enemies is not just a person, but it is the reality of death and the fear of death. And the scriptures say that what Jesus has come to do is he's come to blow a hole in death so that you walk right through it. It's a fascinating thing, friends. I, I don't know if I can convince you of this, but if your brain is taken up with a whole lot of fear, it is incredibly limiting. It limits your creativity. It limits your energy, your enthusiasm, and it does not strengthen you. Fear is not your friend, and at the basis of every fear that you have, whether it's rejection or or the future, or uncertainty, the basis of it is the fear of death. 
If you take away the fear of death from a person, your brain will be so liberated, you will become the person you always wanted to become. You'll remember better. You'll, you'll have a fresher outlook on life. But if you continue in fear, you will be limited. You will never know your truest potential. And so the Lord Jesus, who loves you, knew that these were your enemies. And this scripture says, the king has come to defend his people. Now, I learned theology through a thing called catechism when I was a kid. It's a series of questions and answers. And one of the questions that I was taught as a child is this. Christ is the king. How does he exercise his office of king? And, and here's the answer that was given. Christ ex executes the office of king by subduing us to himself. So the first step of him, he is the king, but if you're not subdued to his kingship, he's not your king. You are in rebellion against the king. Can I, can I just tell you something really bluntly? I have the microphone, so you have no choice. But uh, <laughs> if you're not living on assignment of the king, you're not living. You're living in rebellion. You're living in the fringes. You're living with less than adequate provision. Your life was meant and made to live on the assignment that the king has for you. In some ways, the way that he attempts to subdue you is not to destroy you, but to elevate you, to set you free to be what your bondage has kept you from being. But you can't subdue something that does not want to be subdued. What I've seen is, is people can comply and yet still their hearts be unchanged. Like the little kid in the minivan who keeps standing up in her, in her chair and dad pulls her aside, puts her in the chair, straps her in and she says, I may be sitting down on the outside but I'm standing up on the inside. There is something in us that unless that king has really subdued us to his kingship, we are still living in the rebel country. And part of the issue with that is we're not understanding his kingship. What this, this old theology says is in ruling, he defends us. Do you understand? When you're defending yourself, you can only defend yourself with your past and with your own interpretation of history. You can only defend yourself only in a very limited way. You can, most of us actually defend ourselves by not telling the whole truth. He alone can defend you with his whole truth. He wants to be your defender. He wants to stand up for you. But if you're out there just out on your own, doing your own thing, then you are putting yourself in a place where the defender cannot defend you. It is as you are subdued, as you are yielded, and as you're beginning to trust this king and saying, he's my defense, then suddenly you don't need a defense. I began to realize some years ago, I had a strong defensiveness in my ego. I didn't want anybody to correct me. I didn't want anybody to criticize me. And so I would make them feel small, and I would attack them before they could attack me. And as I came to this place of understanding that my king is my defender and that there is no better defender than Jesus because, you see, he's not defending your past. He's defending you from your future. He's defending you from who you will be, not who you were. Come on, that is pretty good when you think about it. Because you can only defend yourself from who you were. 
He can defend you from who you will be. He's saying this is, this is who this, this subject of mine will be. A mighty warrior. A mighty man of faith. A mighty woman of God. He's calling you out in your identity, not on your behavior. He's calling you from relationship, not religion. You know, and he can defend you in a way you can never defend yourself. That's why when Paul talks about lifting up the shield, he doesn't say lift up the shield you know, of your faithfulness. He says lift up the shield of faith in his faithfulness. He defends you with his own life. It's powerful when you start to think about it. But then as he defends you, he's also restraining and conquering your enemies. I don't know if you know this, but you can't beat Satan. You can't even beat the worst of his angels, of his fallen angels. They have more dirt on you than you have on anybody else. They know all your secrets. They know all your family's secrets. And they can accuse and prosecute you like a lawyer, the finest prosecutor in court. And they have the evidence. There's only one who can defend you. And listen why you should trust him. The passage here says that for a little while, he allowed himself to be lower than the angels. In chapter 1, it says he is the exalted creator. He himself rules over the angels. He himself created the angels. But because he wanted to defeat your enemies, because he wanted to defend you, he set himself into a place where he lowered his status, where he was lower than the beings he created. That he allowed himself... Have you, ever, have you ever thought about what it is like to be lowered in status? I mean, here's a stupid illustration. Suppose you paid for first class. And all of a sudden they say, Sir or ma'am, you can't sit here. You go to the back of the plane. But they send you back to a plane in 1975 where there's a smoking section. And you're back there and you don't smoke and you get filled up with all your clothes stink. Every carry-on now smells like cigarette and everything else. You see, Jesus willingly left first class and went to the smoking section. He absorbed all of the dirt. He absorbed all of the smells. He did so. He lowered his status so that he could be in the position to be the king who defends you. Because, friends, you can't have a champion who is not from us. You can't have him, he couldn't just show up on the scene as a 30-year-old super being and then with his might and his divine power take on Satan and win the battle. That battle's already won. God, there are no two superpowers. There's only one superpower and that's God. Satan is not a superpower. But he has in our place here on this earth, he has dominion he has a, some measure of power over this earth that is greater than the power you have. And what Jesus had to do to take him on to become our champion is he had to become in every way like us so he could substitute for us. He could only represent you if he was like you. He made himself vulnerable. Here he is highly exalted above the angels, yet how marvelous it is to realize that he takes on a nature lower than the angels. See, this is why I trust him to defend me. Because it cost him so much. Because he was willing in such an elaborate way to say, I want to be your defender. 
I want you to choose into me as your king. See, if you're not living on his assignment, you're not living. If you're not living on his resources, then you're poor. It is when you begin to realize this king is everything I need. And Christmas is where he shows his willingness to take on a nature and a status lower than the angels because he couldn't be your champion if he hadn't gone through everything you, went, you go through. And he was willing to do that. But secondly, and maybe more importantly in some ways, we have this, this sort of a, a quoting of, of Psalm 8, which is one of the most, uh, I would say, powerful meditations on God's view of human history. He says in this that humans were made in God's image. They were made to have rulership. They were made to have kingship over this earth that God created. But instead, the position of king was lost. And the status of dominion was lost. And Jesus has come to restore what was lost. What you must understand is that God did this for us. He did not do it for himself. God did not need this. In the fall, when Adam and Eve were deceived, God did not lose his place. You lost your place. That which was to be stewardship over the earth, that which was to be leadership over the earth, that which was to be everything out of justice, everything out of fairness, everything out of abundance became everything out of injustice and unfairness. And instead of abundance, poverty. Instead of work that was satisfying, work became grievous. Even relationships became nothing more than power struggles. And what Jesus has done by coming as a babe in Bethlehem is he's come to restore what is rightfully ours. He's come to bring back justice, to bring back fairness, to bring back oneness in marriage and, and safety in, in families and to make the earth what it was supposed to be and he's given us the power to restore what was stolen. That's what Christmas is about. Christmas is the beginning of the restoration. It's the catalyst of reclaiming the earth and the fullness thereof. You're, you're supposed to be a partner in this. You're not supposed to be under the pile. You're supposed to be over it. You see, that which is born of God must overcome. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in this world. You are more than conquerors through Christ. If God is for you, who can be against you? See, the problem with many people is those are cliches because they don't understand the king. They don't understand, I'm not defending myself. I have a king who's defending me. A king who was willing to take a status lower than the angels he created. Just so I would have a representative. I would have a champion. I would have a captain. I would have a king that I can look up to and say, that king has my best interest at heart. Do you understand? Because God didn't need this. He can do it all for you. This is why you no longer have to make everything about you. Because he's already made it about you. And he's the king. So if you make it about him, you'll realize he's been making it about you. But what I see with so many Christians is they dabble with his kingship. 
They want him when they have nothing else. They want him when they can't get what they want. A mentor of mine in prayer used to say, we pray nickel prayers wanting million-dollar answers. This is the time to realize I can trust him. But not only is he king, he's the brother. I love this part. Now, I'm going to use an old word, but I'm going to try to explain it. And it's the idea of the brother. Jesus comes as your brother, but he does so to sanctify you. He comes as your brother to lift you out of the mire, to lift you out of the connections to darkness, to lift you out of the addictions and the destructive forces that are all around you at all times. All the things that are attractive to you, all the things that are destructive but incredibly appealing. I remember this guy one time told me that he was trying to beat the, his uh, addiction to pornography, but he needed a sign that he should do it. So he went, these are the old days, he went to the convenience store where they had these magazines, this whole rack of magazines, and he said, Lord, first, let these not be appealing to me. Well, it's naked women, dude. Come on. Come on. I mean, you don't want to get to where that's not appealing to you. I mean, it's just, you'd have to be dead, all right, in some way. I mean, that was just a dumb prayer, all right? But the second prayer was this. Because they stayed appealing to him. And the second prayer was this. He said, Lord, let my pastor come and be buying milk. A very specific. <laughs> then I will know that you don't want me to do this. <laughs> no, pastor didn't show. Yeah. Because again, you understand. Here is, here is a person who's wanting it to be easy. They're wanting it to be magic. They're not wanting it to be a matter of the will. They're not, in a sense, understanding how Jesus sanctifies you. What he does, and what this scripture talks about, is that he begins to take you on as your older brother. And it's all relational. It's all about the connection. It's all about... The intimacy of your older brother. Now, think through this with me, okay? I'm an older brother. I'm the oldest of five. I hated being an older brother. Uh, I, maybe others of you loved it. I did not love it. I heard things like this. You're not the boss of me. You're not my, you're not my mother. You can't tell me what to do. And, you know, all I was doing was telling them what mom said they had to do and then threatening them within an inch of their life, which I couldn't do, and all of this stuff. And I hated being an older brother. I prayed every day to be an only brother, you know, to be an only child. <laughs> I'm just, I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to sophisticate this for you. I didn't like it. And I guarantee you my siblings didn't like me as an older brother because I'm very direct and blunt and like, you're, you better do this or you're going to get it or whatever kind of thing. There was no real compassion or mercy. And I felt embarrassed by my, my siblings. And so this whole idea of older brother, I've never had one. Never had an older brother. And so I had to think through this and begin to say, what does it mean for Christ to be my older brother? Because usually older brother is not a great connotation. 
Often it's the one who manipulates, it's the one who gets the first cut, it's all kinds of things that are, you know, that aren't really good here. In the scripture, the older brother is portrayed as being very petty and jealous when the younger brother comes home and the father throws a party for him. He's like, what are you doing? He's already squandered all this. And yet here is what this writer says Jesus was doing in Bethlehem. He was being born to be your brother. You see, by nature, he's not your brother. By nature, he's the son of God. He's not like you at all by nature. His ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. He's so far above you, you can't touch it. And yet, he so wanted to be your older brother that he took on the same exact body type and and experiences. He went through, you know, conception to birth, through being an infant, a teenager to his 20s, all these things. He didn't even move into public ministry till he had established himself in work and being able to support his family. He was willing in every way with no shortcuts whatsoever. Do you understand? He never resorted to his divine power to be a holy man. He's fully God, but he never said, let me tap into that. He lived a humble life of obedience with and for his father. And he did all of that so that all his holiness and all his righteousness and all his perfect obedience, he could then say, let me cover my younger sister with this. Let me cover my younger brother with this. And this scripture says that the day is coming when if you have connected to Jesus as your older brother, he's going to take you by the hand and me by the hand and he's going to stand before the father and he's going to say, here I am, father, your son. And here are all my brothers and my sisters. They're mine. They're one with me. They're of the same nature as me. And he's going to hold you right there. And you're not going to be afraid whatsoever because your older brother is presenting you to the Father. He says in this, you begin to realize you don't have to fear the devil. Because the devil's not going to be able to accuse Jesus of anything. And in this, you don't have to fear death because the one who's already gone through death and blown a hole out the backside of death is the one who's taken you by the hand and will take you into that next encounter where you'll be before the throne of God and he'll say, you're my sister. Come with me. You're my sister. I will present you to our father. You're my brother. Come with me and I will present you to our father. Now, if that isn't worth giving your life for, and turning everything uh, over to him. I don't know what is. Because this deals with death, which you're afraid of, and he takes all the fear away from it. And this deals with the enemy of your soul who wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. And he says, you're in me. I'm your older brother. See, even your parents, even your older siblings, whatever it was, they always had a need themselves. They always were trying to get their own needs. I remember my mother, I have a brother who's 13 months younger than me. Everywhere I went, he had to go. I tried to lose him numerous times. He's just really good at sticking right there. 
You know, every, and so I was always angry because he's stealing my attention. He's stealing my friends, my time. He's making me have a responsibility. And so I was never as good an older brother as I should have been to him because I had so many needs and I was so broken myself. But here is an older brother who has no need of anything from you except for you to receive what he's offering to you. He has nothing he needs and everything to give. And he has proven himself. He has proven himself. We're going to come to this table. But this is the table of your king. This is the king who said, For your sake I will make myself lower than the angels, even though I created them, so that I can take on your enemies, man to demons. And he defeated the devil and has destroyed the work of the devil. And he has made a way for you to have victory in your life over every demonic stronghold there is in your life. But he wants to be the one who defends you, not you. He's asking to be your king. What a humility that the king of glory says, will you let me be your king? I'll defend you. I will support you against your enemies. But you have to subdue. Turn to my assignment for you. Turn and believe that the plans I have for you are better than your own plans that you have for yourself, that I actually know everything you need. See, this is the same king who when faced with temptation, and this was the greatest temptation ever, a temptation you will never have to face. In the garden, he was given two possibilities. And it's such a fascinating thing. You see, he wasn't asking to get out of his obedience. What he was asking, is there a way it could be done without losing my oneness with you? Is there a way that I can die for them but not be rejected, not be forsaken, not lose the very life that I have in the Father and in the Spirit? See, he had a holy desire to keep holy communion. And he knew what was going to happen. It wasn't the pain of the cross. It was the rejection and the forsakenness and the abandonment of the Father at the cross. And he chose to lose what was rightfully his and be rejected so he could be your older brother. See, this is what this means if you let it, if you let it really go deep. There are times you think you're abandoned and all are all alone. You think you're powerless. But you're not. Because he was abandoned and powerless and forsaken and rejected. It doesn't matter how dark the circumstances you feel or even the darkness of your own chemistry sometimes feels. You're never alone. You are connected to the hip to an older brother who's chasing you like my younger brother used to chase me. And he's doing it with all his power, with all his beauty, all of his glory. And he's looking forward to the day you come home. And this scripture says he's going to take you and he's going to say, I'm not ashamed of this brother. I'm not ashamed of this sister. We're one. We're of the same nature. 
I became her older brother. I became his older brother. They accepted my offer. And now I present you, Father, with my family. (laughs) That's amazing, isn't it? That's Christmas. That's Christmas. Will you stand with me? We're going to come to the table of our older brother. Our older brother said this. Eat this till I come again. Eat it in remembrance of me. And he said, drink this. Drink this till I come again. Something happens when you eat this and you drink this for your older brother. Who also happens to be the king. Something of greater defense starts to come in your life. Something of greater courage and power because instead of trying to manufacture character, you start to realize you're connected to all the character you'll ever need in Jesus alone. As we come to the table, I'm really asking that today you would you would say, Lord, you're my king. Subdue me, Lord. Subdue these things that make me rebellious. Subdue these things that make me not trust. Subdue my doubts. Tired of defending myself. You're my defender. You're my king. If you pray that, he'll do it. I know they're my words, but they're straight out of the scripture. But he also wants to be your older brother. It's so powerful. He who by nature was the son of God took on the nature of the son of man. He took no shortcuts. He didn't do anything the easy way. When faced with the greatest temptation, he went through it with flying colors and he said, not my will, but yours be done. He didn't do that out of divine power. He did that out of yielded sonship. You have the same ability, friend. Yielded sonship, yielded daughtership. That very same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in you. But what a picture, isn't it? My old, wow, it makes me cry. My older brother holding my hand, not ashamed of me, and saying, this, this father is my family. This is my brother. This is my sister. And we begin, it says, he starts to lead us in praise. The worship leader of heaven is Jesus himself. He starts to lead us in praise. And we're not praising as, as beggars. We're not praising as, as sinners. We're praising as sons and daughters. That's what Christmas is about, friends. Everything we need, he gave at Christmas. Lord, we set us apart now this this symbol, this sign of what you gave to us. If we went to the manger, it would be empty. If we go to the cross, it's empty. But in heaven, it's full. Full of the intercession that our brother is doing for us right now at the right hand of the Father. 
full of the praises of the Son who came lower than the angels for a time, who is now exalted and highly glorified and magnified as King of kings and Lord of lords, but who stoops down and says, these are my brothers, these are my sisters. You ask that we would do this, so we're going to do it. This is the bread that you gave us when you broke it. You said, this is my body which is broken for you. This is the cup that you gave us. The cup that you said is the cup of the new covenant in your blood for the forgiveness of sins. We're here, Lord, to be subdued, to come under your kingship, to be defended by you, and to be presented by you as our brother. We do this now in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask you to take a seat. This is not the table of the Risen King Alliance Church is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll ask that you receive both elements and hold on to them. Um, just spend this time in prayer. Let the Spirit speak to you. writers um, who are Christians were asked uh, by either press or someone why are you a Christian and one of, one of them G.K. Chesterton said I, I'm a Christian because I became conscious of my sins and uh, C.S. Lewis was the other one who was asked and he was told what Chesterton's answer was and he said it's not enough to be conscious of your sins becoming conscious of your sins make you, makes you realize you need a savior See, this is what is being offered to us. It's not just consciousness that you're inadequate or you're insufficient or whatever it is or that you're even that you're a sinner. It's not enough. It's the acceptance of his invitation to be your savior, to be the king who defends you, the king who fights for you, the king who is willing to make himself lower than the angels so that he could be your substitute. That Savior who is your older brother, who needs nothing from you, but wants to give everything to you, who wants to stand for all eternity with you before his Father and say, you and him are of the same nature, brothers, sisters. What a powerful, powerful picture. And what he wants you to get from that picture is you no longer have to be afraid. It's saving you from your fear. It's saving you from death. It's saving you from anything that could make you afraid. He wants to set you free to be all that he has intended you to be. But he can only do that if he subdues you first. And he becomes your king, who is also your older brother. Will you receive these elements? Eat and drink. The Lord said, if you're hungry, he'll fill you. If you're thirsty, he'll satisfy you. Eat together. Will you stand with me?
Some images from my church when I was a child never go away from me. And one of the images that I have is, is all service long, there was a white cloth over the communion elements. And when I was a kid, it looked like a body, which was so, you know, intriguing to me as a child to peek under there and see. And then they would pull the cover off and it would be communion and he would talk about the body of Christ and talk about the blood of Christ. And it was so fascinating to me. But one of the things that the elders would do is they would fold the cloth up neatly and they would never put the cloth back on afterwards. And I asked them when I was got older, I said, why do you do that way? They said, because he is risen. You know, when they came to the tomb, they found a folded cloth that had wrapped his body because he was not there. It's a beautiful thing that Jesus died for us, but he didn't stay in that tomb. He is risen. He is alive. And see, that's why he can be the king. That's why he can be your older brother. God bless you. May he seal what he's doing in your heart today. If, if, if this is the day you said, Lord, I receive you, Please tell somebody about that. Don't just keep it to yourself. God bless you. Hug a few people. We'll see you next week.